Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome everyone to the Ransom Body Humanity Podcast. Today I have Gordon Paul as a guest, someone who teaches people to be confident on camera and express themselves truly and authentically. Over the years, he has performed in TV shows and stages around the world to an estimated audience of well over 2 billion people. 2 billion people, my God. And he offered performance level presentation techniques in his own method called the art of face dancing. Welcome to the podcast, Gordon. Big Phil, how's it going? It's going well, man. I have a question for you. Do you think that artists are born or that it's in them or are they created? I've been thinking about that shit for a long time. In fact, because I've been traveling around the world performing, people ask part of the presentation always comes with a certain amount of meet and greet and lecture demonstrations and master classes and question answer periods. So this has been I've been reached out to on this question a lot Mm -hmm. since 1987. I'm a little bit older than you, maybe. Maybe. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Oh, no. Everybody wants to live a creative life, okay? So we might be able to make a, a certain amount of distinctions at the, maybe the gradations, right? So... When I say what I'm about to say, bear in mind that there are also within each like level of improvement of artistic sense, there, there are people who maybe on an objective level, they might suck or they might be naturally talented. And then again, there's also the subjective level of whether I think their stuff actually is good, which has nothing to do with whether or not they are They are an articulate artist. So there are people who I don't deny their talent, and yet I think what they do sucks. And then there are other people who I think have never really extracted everything they have, but I see massive potential. And then there are also the people who I think make stuff and I think they make good stuff, but it's not because of them. It's because they have a fantastic team around them that has been able to frame their work and they are actually a mediocre piece of shit. So there's always this sense, you know, I mean, that's my own personal take, right? That's subjective. So empirically, there are these notions of, you know, there's a beginner and with a beginner, they will start to want to find a way to get out of their own way. That's a really important thing. And then they start to explore the idea of what they consider to be appealing and interesting, how they can make something that they want to say look good. And then there's the idea of whether or not they are actually speaking something that really says something and has like some unique, fascinating spin that isn't derivative of some famous stuff that we've already seen before. And they're just a fucking thief because they can't figure out how to do it with their own unique. And they don't acknowledge where it actually came from. And that's just some weak ass shit that they have to eventually learn. Doesn't everybody begin with some inspiration and they say like, steal like an artist and just do form elements and then mold that to your own unique expression. 
Yeah, sure, absolutely. There is absolutely nothing wrong. You know, the the book "Steal Like an Artist" wonderful stuff. You know, it's great stuff. And yet, there is a section within that book that does say, by the way, stealing like an artist does not mean stealing someone's work. Mm-hmm. If you steal someone's work, you're a pussy. Acknowledge that you're standing on the shoulders of giants. Accept that you are part of a larger lineage. Accept that your inspiration deserves acknowledgement and that it didn't come from you and that those people actually, probably, especially if you're new at this, they actually logged the time and may have even bled for their actual increased understanding of how to express themselves, right? So that's where the concept in, in higher education learning, you know, if you're critiquing someone's work, you offer a citation towards someone's stuff so that it's not plagiarism. And that's very, very important. Like I know exactly, you know, I teach my clients and I teach people, you know, the clients, you know, business stuff, but I teach artists to understand and locate their own artistic lineage so that they can understand where their inspiration is coming from and they can pay those people to do respect. Something that I noticed and I'm very passionate about art. I'm- as much as I like certain art, I despise certain art. For me, subjective definition, it has to trigger something in me, imagination or my feelings, something in me, you know. And what I've noticed, a lot of things with postmodern art, that has shifted from creative to reactive. It's not creating from within yourself, it's reactive in terms of how it will be perceived, what attention will it get. Always seen from the side of the people who watch it instead of like creating it from in yourself. So it's more about the following, the perceived reaction than the creative act itself, I feel. Well, that's a fascinating thing that I feel. I understand exactly where you're coming from with that. And I think that that has a lot to do with the current society, the past, you know, since the advent of the, of the social media explosion, people offer stuff like, yeah, people offer stuff understanding that the impact is what is going to generate. In fact, you know, w- we met through this concept of, you know, through, through the business forum, right? So the business format has everything to do with delivering in such a way that you can gain some traction. And you gain traction with business people in a fundamentally different way than you gain traction with like high quality art. They are within a certain similar sphere, but they are very different, and it's important to understand the difference. The one interesting thing that you're mentioning about that that comes to mind immediately is my wife. Uh, my wife's big on Instagram, and she finds some cool things with uh, within the dance world because I'm a trained dancer, actor, theater performer, improvisation, comedy weirdo. So there's this really, really cool dubstep type of shit that's, uh, I don't know who they are. There's some young guys, you know, 20 years old, whatever it is. And they're doing some badass cool shit. And their stuff is, uh, their synchronization with each other is great. And their work within that is also top notch. And they can produce one minute of really, really compelling stuff. It's great to watch. Mm -hmm. Perfect for TikTok. Perfect for Instagram. To call that stuff mind-blowing is to forget that if you were to ask those people to come to your town and perform their stuff, you would be disappointed for one of two reasons. 
Either they are incapable fundamentally of holding your attention with the same high level cool shit for at least an hour. And in my and in my way of thinking, a good gig should be about an hour and a half. These guys couldn't fucking bring an hour and a half of work. Not only that, but all of their stuff is cool and slightly different from each other so that each of them is framed within that cool minute. And if you put that same stuff side by side for a maximum of 20 minutes, you'd be bored to tears because it's all monotone. So the idea of impact on a 30-second level does not mean that you become some kind of wunderkind artist that can actually deliver something that has value that goes beyond a fucking attention span of a mosquito. And I think that that's where we are right now. I know some brilliant dancers and some brilliant performers and some fantastic actors who won't gain traction with their stuff because the two-dimensional format of camera and camera universe will fall flat on work that cannot hold that type of attention but is gangbusters mm -hmm. in a theatrical setting. This is where we are now. Yeah, and you as a coach also have to navigate it because you could give the best content and best performance, but if you can't catch the attention, even though the attention span is short, you have to play with how humanity is right now because else you don't get noticed. And when you don't get noticed, it doesn't matter how good you are. You know, It will still be uh, difficult to get gigs and uh, be booked and be hired. Completely. Yeah. So, you know, that's why it just came in a fascinating time in my life where everything sort of conspired to allow me to articulate this particular way of being a coach online for people and that it falls at this time with COVID and, mm. you know, just, you know, 2020. I was thinking of this last night. We'll talk about 2020 in just a mm -hmm. moment, but you know, but the you know, it just fell at the right time for me. So mm -hmm. what I offer online is a glimpse into creative brilliance, and whether or not people like what I do, I don't give a fuck. You know, the people who like it, they're ready. I'm I made my bones in this, so I I'm very comfortable saying what I say the way I say it, and. The idea of unedited brilliance on camera so that you develop your camera confidence and your message in order to articulate and bring it like mm -hmm. gangbusters automatically or inherently precludes some of the types of work that I have in my video that I, you know, it, I, I don't need people to see that particular stuff because it's not within this particular wheelhouse. So it's unnecessary. Although I have been feeling a lack. I've been feeling some empty space inside me because my creativity has been overtaken by some of my business uh, development skills and the way mm -hmm. I train people and just a small portion of what I choose to do, of what I love to do. I've been also a performer for about 16 years. I did hip hop, I performed at stages, freestyling, improvising, which I love to do. I'm a huge hover of, of language. When I look back a part of it, and I'm curious about your experience or maybe some clients that you have, for me, it also was a bit of a mask because I was judged on doing by my parents. Always I had to be a good good boy. 
I was a good boy, but I was just very imaginative and in my own world. So for me, like that music, being an artist was almost like a way to perform, to show that I'm good, which was nice, but it also weighed heavily on me because sometimes I was like the freak, the weirdo, the dancing monkey, and it became another character that almost like possessed me. Until in my 20s, 30s, I realized I liked that part, but I'm playing this role too much. It almost took like over me to again become a performer, not only in art, but also a performer in life. Did you notice that in your life? Do you notice that with clients or you see a lot of people, especially stand-up comedians, that they're brilliant in performing, but they carry a lot of low self-worth or lack of meaning within themselves? Yes. I mean, you know, the answer is yes. And the answer, and, and I also get completely where you're coming from. You were the front man, or at least in a fashion, the front man of a sort of hip-hop fusion type yeah. of house thing. You know, being up on stage in front of a lot of people, you have a persona. And it can be very confusing or at least hard to re-enter your own life after some kind of gig or after a tour or after some long-term event. You also, when people identify with what you do and identify you as a particular portion of your own character, they can approach you. You know, there were there have been many years where I would walk into a um, restaurant to have dinner with my wife. You know, and and people would stop me on the way to get to the table. Hey, how you doing? Where you been? Where you coming from? And I had a hard time just saying, "I'd love to talk to you." And what I do now, yeah, because I'm better at this, is I'd love to talk to you, but I'm having dinner with my wife. Mm-hmm. Good to see you. Take off. But back then, I assumed the role, I knew what I was going to be getting into, and I gave everybody a few minutes, and my wife would be sitting at the table waiting for me. I mean, how fucking rude is that? So I'm reminded of a quote by Bob Dylan, and it's a really good one. He said, just because you like my music doesn't mean I owe you any." <laughs> so on the other side of what you mentioned is the notion of art and creativity is welcomes people in the safe haven of the world of freaks Mm -hmm. so that if you have something to say and you feel like you've been stifled in your life somewhere else, often by parents and friends and family, older brothers and sisters, people desperately trying to protect you from the fact that you'll never earn a fucking dime if you go in that direction. Yeah, they say, what if everybody would do like this? And I'm like, I wouldn't be happy because that's the way I'm I'm thinking. (laughs) I would fundamentally shift the economy of the world. (laughs) It would fundamentally shift the concept of business. People would stop behaving like sheep. Ooh, buy Nike. Wow, Nike really speaks to me. Oh, really? Nike? You just want your fucking money. <laughs> yeah, and that's so heavy on education. That's why I like Rebel with the cause, thought leaders, artists, creatives, change makers so much because you've been told so much, no conform. You're stepping out of the prescribed narrative and you have to fight so much just for being yourself or oppressing, expressing yourself in a way without being oppressed. And that often creates a lot of fighter mentality or sometimes even resentments towards the establishment or the normal people because you had to stand up so much just to be allowed to be who you are and express how you want to express yourself yeah and it's you know some artists get really militant 
about their particular stance in life because they have spent so much time having to defend themselves mm -hmm. and they defend themselves from those who feel threatened by the fact that they are saying there's another way of looking and art as revolution artist as revolutionary you know i preach honing and forging your own personal revolution through your work you know most people most people i believe most people have a hard time getting out of their own way and saying what they fucking mean saying what they really fucking mean so some people really want to and if you say the things that they only dare to think in their head if you're able to actually express in words on paper and video film song format if you can actually liberate them by saying what they mean for them that's how you actually gain people saying wow i really you know i want some of what he's drinking you know it's, but, it's almost it's almost like an echo of your authentic self i learned this from a great book which is man's search for himself by rollo may and he also talks about the panopticon and panopticon is something that jeremy bentham coined and it's the term the prison you always feel watched so you always feel like somebody is watching how you're performing now even with like instagram it's always with a filter censorship of speech you have to be filtered beforehand and it's very difficult in that situation where you're constantly watched constantly filtered you don't get feedback from your genuine authentic self to just be an authentic independent human being one of the fascinating aspects of wanting to present yourself in any particular way is that you want to understand what it is not only that you want to say but how to say it in a way that it comes off the way you intend now the simple thing the simple thing in business is that you get to tell people what their takeaway is you get to explain to them exactly what this stuff does with art you can't I don't think you should. There is some there are some aspects of music and certain types of performance where people say, "Wake the fuck up, do this now, get out the vote, you know, be yourself, stop believing in the, you know, whatever they're fucking saying, you know, question authority, all that mm -hmm. stuff." There's a militant notion to, you know, punk rock came from that. But mostly you work within offering analogy and offering storyline as a mirror to the world so that people can come to their own conclusion and come to the conclusion you're hoping they will without you telling them. That's the esoteric brilliance of something that's operating on that highly creative plane. It's a good point that you make because that's also what I like about art that it involves participants to use their own imagination or make it up for themselves or come to their own conclusion. And maybe that is why artists are so dangerous, because I feel in this point in time, they don't want people to reach their own conclusion, think for themselves. They want to have a prescribed reality where the solution is like one thing that you can only adhere to. And I think that's so dangerous. That is why artists are such true revolutionaries. But now art seems to be, you know, completely in the back, like, yeah, when society goes well, then uh, art is nice and go to a theater or whatever. But when it's not going well, it's not essential. No, then, it, then it's more essential than ever to go back to the basics and communicate super important values and things to pay attention to. I agree. Vladimir Nabokov was sent to Siberia.
right? The Gulag Archipelago housed scientists and artists, thinkers and writers, poets. People get persecuted in places where there is imperial authority exerted upon the people because art asks you to reconsider the fundamental the fundamental building blocks that you uh that you're being told to trust yeah if i would see a stage right now i'm seeing touch i'm seeing play i'm seeing singing i'm seeing you know people connecting and seeing you know things that a lot of times now in this corona thing are prohibited but when i see it in a play it's essentially human it's what makes us human human of uh, a yeah. you know freedom of expression freedom of speech i think are one of the most fundamental things that makes us human yeah, absolutely. We, how how you do know. you as an artist look back at what happened in 2020 and how it evolved, like, especially uh, as an artist? Or I'm one of those weird, well, I don't know if it's weird. I don't, I, don't, I don't care what anybody else thinks about it. I'm one of those people who sees the world or universe or Earth's power, power plays that are bigger than us and think, well, yeah, people are dying. And I have a great deal of compassion for the fact that, you know, I mean, we are here for a brief time, even the ones who live to be 100. But I love the fact that there are forces that are so much bigger than us. And in this particular case, it comes as no surprise to me that a teeny little microscopic bug can get around the world and take care of business all it's trying to do is survive but we keep looking at you know like humans are the weirdest fucking animal on this planet we are the only one i think that causes the type of massive damage to the planet and to ourselves and to everything else the way we do so the earth will survive long after we're gone and tidal waves, hurricanes, and mass contagion, we're just not expecting it. So it's not that it was actually a surprise to me. Books have been, you know, science fiction. Michael Crichton wrote about this 30, 40 years ago. And he's not the first one. It's just that no one's ever, no one's ever ready. No one's ready for some typhoon, some tsunami. Yeah, and one thing is when you say people are not being ready, it's also people are not used to it anymore because, okay, it is bad what's happening. At the same time, when we're looking at the numbers, when we have HIV, the Black Plague, the Spanish flu, you know, it's still like a lot less. But it seems that Ernest Becker also wrote about this, the denial of death, that uh, that is an essential part of life to give us meaning. And it's almost like we can't handle death anymore. And it, it's whether you like it or not, it's a crucial element. It's, it's bad that people die. However, at the same time now, it seems to be treated like we have to have a sterile society where we don't see and hear of any deaths anymore, and then we'll be fine. But it's actually a part of life, death. Yeah, we humans like to feel that we have the control. We like to be the ones exerting the control. and many different humans have differing opinions on what exactly should be done in order to mitigate. And yet, you know, like on the most basic level, wildfires, big forest fires, these things have been happening for forever. 
something happens, lightning hits, uh, fire happens, and a small forest disappears for a period, and then it grows back. So we have gone about the business of trying to solve certain things that get rid of forest fires, and what that has turned into is bigger forest fires when they happen. <laughs> and so, you know, are we fixing things? If, you know, and I know that this is a fake thing, but it's a neat concept, that whole idea of if one day the earth woke up and there were no more humans in a hundred years, the earth would flourish. But mm -hmm. if one day we all woke up and there were no more insects in a hundred years, the earth would perish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and, and that's just speculation and you know, no one can prove that, but it is an interesting thing. We are the proudest monkey. We are gorillas with money and guns and we're walking around making choices as if they are the best. They're not the best for everything. They're the best for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's always a matter of finding like the balance because every extreme can become perverted just as you, you can lock your children in the house all the time and uh, decontaminate everything and make it super sterile. But what will that mean that as soon as there's one tiny little bug, when the when a, when a child steps outside, it's immediately going to get super ill because it just has no resistance or resiliency anymore. You know, that's also a way to protect yourself by exposing yourself to risk to maybe when you can look at art like and maybe you, you can delve into that like how do you develop confidence well oftentimes it's stepping outside of your comfort zone handling ridicule getting up again seeing that you know it's not so bad as it was before or people forget about it anyway and going through that painful shameful guilty i mean the label that you put on it period and then you get better and then you get used to it right how do you look at building up that confidence and that freedom of expression, that authenticity in speech and before camera. You have to get really, really comfortable with the knowledge that failure is your ally. Failure is not the enemy. And you have to move into the failure understanding that we, you know, I love that expression where people say, you know, I am either succeeding or I am learning. <laughs> and we learn more, most of us, I, d I know I do. I learn more from screwing up than I do from when I do things right. Because when we do things right, mostly we are not saying, how did I do that right? What did I do that was so right? We're just saying, ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when we fuck up, that's when we actually say, was I too relaxed? Was I not relaxed enough? Did I work hard enough? Did I not work hard enough? Was I too tense? Was I too self-conscious? Was I whatever it is? And then you start to say, oh, I can parse this thing. I need a little more work here, 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 and here. Failure is your ally. You move forward into that and you make it, you allow it to improve you. And the more you accept that and the more you go out there and, you know, get some bad reviews or move toward the fear so that you can get over it, the quicker you get to the point of saying, you know, of learning the cycle of clarity. There's this cycle of clarity. And you'll understand this. You present, you have an idea. Instinct, implementation, presentation examination, 
tweak. Mm. Implementation, presentation, examination, tweak, right? That's right? great. I use the CSI method, which stands for clarify, simplify, implement. Then you use the feedback again, you clarify, simplify, implement. So yeah, and I like the thing that you also say. Right, right. Yeah. However, it seems that the start and that exposure, that naked exposure for people is really the period where they put so much pressure on themselves or holds them back or they try a couple of times and then they just quit. seems that the beginning period to get launched is a very crucial period. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, everybody has their mommy and daddy issues or whatever it is that are going to give them a whatever degree of of self-deprecation if they don't do it right, right from the beginning. But if you have a certain amount of outside accountability, you know, someone who is a relatively compassionate, invested in you, yet objective outside eye, that person can say, can remind you, you know, you're, uh, of course you're, of course you're not good yet. The only one who's ever, the only one who started good, the only one I can I've I've ever heard of who started good was Mozart. Mm -hmm. Everybody else started and they sucked. He also got lessons from his dad or, or from a family member when he was like five years old or three years old. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and he took to that and he automatically got it. And he, you know, so so right, his his dad was there. And if had he not been in that space and time with that particular dad, it might've been, you know, off, but most people started this up and get okay with that. You know, get okay with that. And on one and hand, then, it's also the difficulty starting that's difficult with, but a lot of times, and my clients often have this, that this perfectionists and it's good to keep on repeating it until you nail it, right? Like, you know, your gestures, probably you did it like a gazillion times just to get the delivery, right? So that is a role for perfecting it. But what do you think is the role of perfectionism in expressing yourself? The role of perfectionism comes within the proper use of what I refer to as the inner sensor or the inner policeman. There are times and places where your inner policeman, you know who that is. It's the one on your shoulder. It's the one telling you that's not good enough. That's, uh, you know, and all picking it apart. And that inner sensor comes in handy when you empower that inner sensor at the right times within examination, brainstorming, delivery, all that stuff. So learning when it's valuable to spray some inner sensor, be gone, get, get them the fuck out of there. You will have that opportunity to start to harness that perfectionist sensibility that enables it to work for you while at the same time keeping it out of the process, you know, at the times of the process when it's absolutely on, you know, going to, yeah, I got a question from Stephanie who also asked, where do you find the balance between scripting, writing out the elements of what you want to say, how you want to do it, so being in your head, and then just expressing it and embodying it? Because if you would mm. completely be expressing and embodying it, that sensor probably will be in the background, so you could improve maybe a little. But on the other way around, if you're completely in your head, like you're not fully embodying it and expressing yourself 100%. So how, how do you uh, deal with that? I teach people what I refer to as the honing of 
a highly structured improv. And the highly structured improv needs to come from understanding the components of the individual, you know, the components and subcomponents of whatever message you're trying to say. You practice them, not memorizing a script. Most people, most people are doing it wrong for one of the following two reasons. They will have tried to memorize some kind of script and they don't know how to write the way they speak. Most people don't. Mm -hmm. Or they've gone out there and they've bought somebody else's program and they've gotten some script. And mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with how you actually say anything in the real world. That's why I abhor scripts mm -hmm. with, that haven't been fundamentally adjusted to your own unique sense of self. So starting with parsing your own sense of self so that you can start to understand the ways you like to say what you want to say will enable you to examine each of the individual components of whatever presentation you want to make. And when you rehearse each of those individual things, so each of those things is inside you enough, each of the individual components becomes its own stru highly structured improv. And then if you don't know how to hold on to the flow, you can actually write the flow in what I refer to as anchor points, little, little phrases or words or expressions that will trigger that particular section. And you write them in order and you can tape them right next to your screen. Or what I do when I'm doing a, a stage show, my highly structured improv of my own monologues is taped on the floor in various places all around the stage. And I can just walk right over and wherever the fuck I am, I can look right down and I can take a moment and I can remember where I need to be next. And I've even gone out of or away from the idea of trying to hide some of the things from my audience when I'm in the middle of a structured presentation of my own one-man shows, I do a section, and when I'm done with that section, I walk over to a piece of paper unapologetically. <laughs> if I want to acknowledge the yeah. audience, I look at them, I look at the thing, I don't care how long it takes before I turn right back around. When I'm ready, I drop that thing, I look right back, and I walk over and I do the next thing. It's just anchor points in large form or small form. Yeah, unapologetically being yourself is pretty important. And the number one audience is, the, is yourself, right? You can only project yeah. things towards other people how you first uh, are towards yourself. So if you start to cultivate that unapologetically being you. Once in a while, I have a LSD experience and I have a date with myself. And I mostly do it like a museum. Right, I did it in the Prado Museum, Fizzi Galleria, like with really great art, and nothing weird happens. Just me enjoying art it cultivates my imagination. You know, it's for me, it's like a great thing. And I took a friend there once, and it was like the first time that he took it, and he was like thinking, like, what will people say? What will they do? And I said, like, people will treat you how you're treating yourself, how you're viewing yourself. So if you think I'm just here enjoying myself in the museum, I'm not going to buy a ticket. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So that was one of the ways where I learned. Also, in, when I performed on a big stage, I was the number one thing is that I enjoy myself. And the crowd will enjoy themselves if I enjoy myself. And that, that is what I'm going to make the number one priority with enough preparation, of course, that you're like professional. 
But then like, yeah, that's the number one thing I'm going to focus on, getting out of my own way and having fun. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. You know, uh, you know, the funny thing is that when you're tripping, you can show up in a Prado and, you know, if you accidentally decide to take a shit in the center of one of the rooms, you'll probably, you know, that's a faux pas and they'll call the cops. <laughs> yeah. However, if your compadre has a series of small little written notes, you know, framed on pieces of uh, metal and pops it right down in front of you saying, you know, human and feces live performance 2020, <laughs> then suddenly you actually might get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They clean up some modern art and saying like, whoa, whoa, you clean it up. It actually was modern art. It cost so many thousands yeah, of yeah. dollars, you know. It was, it was so fascinating. It moved me. Say, really? Okay, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, one of these experiences also learned me that, you know, what you what you perceive influences how you feel and what you feel influences what you perceive and you can shift with that. And when you can learn how to put that energy and that focus like you sometimes teach like with the audience or you just don't talk to the camera, talk to one person and just embody it, play with that perception and that feeling, you can really create that environment and that vibe and feeling that you want. I've been thinking a lot about this idea and I'm 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 starting to uh, compose more of some of my exercises that I, I teach my uh, I teach my group part of it under the rubric of this of this phrase I refer to as conceptual drift, right? So you start someplace and as you articulate a concept, it will move in the direction that it deserves and needs to, and that drift is not something that you can inherently control, but it will enable you to locate it better. As you go into it and get out of the way of what it wants to, you know, what it wants to say and how it wants to say it. So we think of these different aspects of conceptual drift as their own unique entity as a child, and you let it find its level. So it will drift where. It will, and in the ocean, you can't control the tide, you can't control the wind, and if you allow that concept to have that its own autonomy, it will actually facilitate your seeing where it deserves to be. Where do you think the role of intuition is then? Is that, is that something that you can cultivate and create, or is that just a matter of letting go and it's already there? Some people have better natural instinct and some people have instinct that needs to be honed and perfected over time. And it's the same with artistic integrity. Some people have a natural ability to get it and other people have to work and work and work and work and it will gradually come. The level to which it will come is not necessarily something you're in control of and the perfectionists will always insist that it's never good enough. But you can only find out if you move into the work and open your eyes and your mind to the discovery that, you know, that comes with that practice. <laughs> if, you, if you leave it to sheer luck and talent, what kind of lazy fucking crap is that? <laughs> well, people say, I don't feel motivated right now. or I don't have the motivation to do it right now. What do you say to that? I say... Good. I guess you don't. <laughs> you know, there's a 
I wish I could give you the actual footnote, the actual uh, the actual information, but a, uh, a famous poet, okay? And it's kind of funny to think of a famous poet because there aren't too many famous poets, mm-hmm. but a, well, a, you know, a well-respected poet was approached by a student saying, how can I become a true poet? And the answer was, go do anything else. And if you're successful at that, and you never do poetry again, you're not a poet. I can't help but do the stuff I like to do. My best friend in the world, well, one of my best friends in the world, he, he died a few years ago. The single most creative, talented person I have ever personally known, and that includes my wife, who is a fucking brilliant artist. He made anywhere out of anything always. He couldn't help it. I live now with the inspiration of trying to cultivate as much as I can bring to bear. And I think of what I bring as like maximum 10% of the unbelievable potency of his creativity. So if you don't have a burning desire to figure something out, you can gradually hone your interest in that. And that's my intention early in the process working with clients. I help them locate what they so dearly care about articulating. That's the shit they should turn into a program or a service. That's the stuff that becomes an offer. And that's the type of offer that they don't have to even sell to anyone because when you believe it in your soul, And you have learned what I teach them, how to tap it into the message of my shit in either large form or small form Mm -hmm. is part of the solution to saving the fucking planet, to saving the universe. When you can tap into that, then you can continue to hone not only your investigation and cultivate the interest, but you also actually don't have to sell it to people because you're preaching the gospel of you and people will come to you because it's easy to have like art when you're in the mood or inspired or motivated but in the end most of the times it's best when it becomes a duty i feel like it's my duty to do this for me for my legacy for the people who following me and i'm just showing up because this is of importance to me i think shifting then to that kind of attitude is better than just relying on motivation and inspiration because that will sometimes dissipate. I will always not be there, but just the practice, just the showing up, not the hustling all the time, 100%, because some people are too extreme in it. But I think that is very important to then have the duty of showing up consistently because in the end, it's not just about you anymore. It's just what about what you're leaving behind or what you're willing to value. Yeah, and yeah, and Right. So, so you're touching on two different points there, one of which is that the duty to a larger purpose, and one of them is this concept of legacy, right? And a lot of people have a desire to like leave some legacy. And I find that to be, uh, I have lots of opinions about that, whether or not it's actually important at all, or whether or not it should figure in, because I find it to be a less than compelling motivational source because it's all externally driven as is most of the stuff that involves money. There's more to the concept of value than money. Now, money is important, and I like to charge people because of various reasons, but I like to understand why the money is important on a more fundamental level than making me 
some, you know, giving my bank account a bigger, a big, you know, a, a, a bigger. And maybe that relates with just before the podcast, you were ranting and maybe we'll do the rant again. So you have entrepreneurs who use these performance techniques or artful techniques, but they basically just use it like, yeah, because then you will make more money or get more customers, you know? Do you feel a bit that they're abusing a beautiful art form or a bit fake artist or how do you look at this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's So, you know, there's this interesting idea of all of those people who are giving you the shiny object syndrome of, you know, I, I'm going to make, who wants my script and how I made 35,000 million billion dollars uh, in, you know, in two weeks using some monkey's brains, an umbrella. From the bathtub, from the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and you have all these people, me, 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 me. It's oh my fucking God, really? You know, there's snake oil salesmen, you know, there's used car salesmen and there's all of that stuff, you know, buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. Who wants to be a millionaire now? You know, and, you know, even, you know, I mean, Donald Trump's whole thing in on, mm -hmm. on his The Apprentice show was, you know, join my thing and I get to decide who is the winner and how many of you I get to say you're fired. and the winner gets gets the opportunity to grab the golden, you know, mm. the golden hoop. Cass. Yeah, <laughs> gets to yeah, gets to munch munch on the golden calf. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I broke my molar on a golden calf, but yeah. <laughs> Everybody more now than ever, I guess. Maybe not. You know, there's a sucker born every minute, you know, Barnum and Bailey Circus, you know, all these people. But certainly now it's easier to see even more claims of there's a, there, yes, there is a get rich quick app. I will send you the magic button and you will have that thing. And people buy, they buy. Most countries in the world have a lottery. And when the lottery came, you know, my buddy who I mentioned before, my creative, brilliant pal, Mike, when the lottery came to Florida where he grew up and he told his dad about the lottery and he said, dad, they just came out with this lottery. And his father took a look and asked him some questions about it and said, well, they finally figured out a way to tax the ignorant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that there are a lot of people who want that stuff and there are a lot of people who are going to make a lot of money off of uh, selling people that snake oil. And I also know that there are a lot of people who want to be told the God's honest truth. And they will say, if you say it in the right way, and if you say it from an honest point place, and you also believe in what you do and you're not selling them a bill of goods, you can explain there's no app for this. Because what I'm going to give you isn't just business. And what I say with my stuff, for example, what this actually does is liberate your fucking life. What can I say about that that you want to hear if I tell you this will happen over the weekend? Yeah. Oh, my fucking God. Yo, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you the honest truth. I'm going to tell you that all of these, you know, Steely Dan, great musicians, 
when they finally got their Artist of the Year award, a journalist turned to them and said, how's it feel to be an overnight sensation? Walter Becker said, yeah, after 25 years, it feels pretty damn good. 25 years. You know, most startups, they're not, they're, they're not 30 days. You know, a year and a half, two years, five years, you know, so I don't know how long it takes. Yeah, when, but, I, when, I, when I work with my one-on-one -on -one clients, and I am also like a truth sayer, I say oftentimes when you set up a business and it's your first business, hopefully, you know, it doesn't fail. It's going to take you at least two, three years to figure things out. Yourself, your offer, your audience, you know, your business, you know, you go through the whole journey. That takes time. It's lifestyle change. It's business change. It's identity change. It doesn't happen in a month. You know, you have to use your circle of clarity. Use my CSI method to clarify, simplify, and implement, and then get more clear along the way. And I interviewed because I was into hip hop like Cypress Hill once and I uh, asked them like, hey, what guys did you like the most? Getting to the top or staying at the top? Getting to the top. We are so quickly to go to the top, but then, you know, all the beautiful views we have on the road to the top and all the struggles and we get a little bit better and our goalpost moves. That's actually the important moments, you know, that sounds a bit cliche, but that journey, not in the beginning, but in the middle and then just getting better, like that's a lot more pleasant than being on the top or staying on the top yeah the thrill is in the journey the journey is the journey is a very active fertile place where you're trying to solve problems and those problems are those problems are esoteric and you're gonna you know make a few screw-ups and then you're gonna find one and when you find one it's so rewarding What's one of the most embarrassing moments you ever had as a performer and how did you deal with it afterwards? <laughs> I've thought about this many times. I was asked often to give a talk and I usually knew what I wanted to say. But early on, I went to a town, I don't remember what town it was, some, someplace in the United States. And I was talking to the honors society of this university. And there were all of, you know, I don't know. It was, uh, it was a big, it was a big lecture hall, 500 people maybe. And I didn't script and I didn't prepare. And I just walked in there and I was full of myself. And I thought I could be some kind of artistic person and I opened my mouth and I said some stupid stupid stuff that fell flat and I knew it fell flat and I don't even remember how I riffed from there but as soon as I said what I as soon as I said my first opening comments which I had thought of you know like two minutes before I walked out on that stage mm -hmm. I immediately thought whoa I didn't prepare and this is embarrassingly shitty I owe these people more and I fundamentally shifted it and I paid them more respect and I actually focused. And I have often thought about that one because I think that the first impression that some of those people had was lasting. They might never forget that because I remember seeing this guy who came to, you know, as a visiting artist and <laughs> he just, he was, he, he, he was, he was cringeworthy. And I 
sometimes think of that and I will never disrespect my audience that way again. Doesn't matter if I'm talking to seven year olds. I have performed for, I have performed a full show catered to young kids for, you know, 10 seven year olds. I've done a gig for them. I've also performed for, you know, I mean, my biggest live crowd was 25,000 people, but usually it's somewhere between there, you know, between 10 and 25,000. And I don't give a fuck if it's for one person. I deliberately made a show late, late, late at night in the middle of nowhere in order to conquer my fear of getting a small crowd. And I performed for the one person who showed up a few times. It was eight shows over a month. I brought it like fucking gangbusters every time. <laughs> yeah, those people are also just paying you to have some fun, to have some relief, to have some entertainment, you know? Like, don't take your audience for granted, you know? That's their night of going out and, you know, getting outside of their head. So, you know, you owe them to give them a good time, you know? At least private, in the, in the best way that you can. Private gig. I say, congratulations, you know, you got a private gig. This is, you know, I have a friend who did his gig for Frank Zappa in Frank Zappa's bedroom when he was dying of cancer. That's a private, that's a special private showing. But same thing for, you know, I mean, for that person who comes, who leaves their house, gets dressed, drives over, finds parking, maybe stops at a bar or dinner beforehand and comes to see my gig. They don't know that it's about to be a private show, but they get a private show. Fucking A. How brilliant. So. I treat them the same way I would treat when I have a you know, sold out gig for 2000 people. It doesn't matter to me. For everybody who want to hire you, not for a gig, for everything that you do with uh, the Academy, <laughs> with the art of face dancing, where can they find out more about your programs and about what you do? My art of face dancing. Well, first of all, you know, the art of face dancing.com and on Facebook, although my name is Paul Gordon on Facebook, it's Gordon Paul. I reversed it for shits and giggles, my own entertainment. From Gordon Paul, there's a link to my free Art of Face Dancing group on Facebook, which I think is referred to as Video Mastery for Entrepreneurs. That's my little section under the larger Facebook group rubric. But the Art of Face Dancing, you can find me there. Where else? You can find me. I'm on LinkedIn, Paul Gordon, Art of Face Dancing. Yeah, they can check out the descriptions. I want to thank you for helping people become confident, speaking your mind, helping to be expressive, using your eccentric hands, gestures, and the face gestures. If I would put at the end now some motivational music on this, and I would have you rant about something that could motivate people towards getting outside of their way and becoming more confident and expressive, what would you say? Three, two, one. I would say... You have been convincing yourself since you first left your home and went to school and started to learn that your friends, if you made a mistake, would laugh at you and you get scared of being laughed at. And that creates this sense that you can't necessarily fail because it will be embarrassing and bad. And I want to let you know that all of the people that you're looking for to lift you up in the world are the people who are going to be your friends, who are going to love you. And all of the people who you need to surround yourself with are those people and the others 
all of those ones that are not going to raise you up, but are going to try to tick away and click away and gradually chip away at your sense of self-worth, they are not your friends. And if they're not your friends, they actually don't fucking matter at all, ever. Align yourself with the ones who will rise you up. Don't look back. Don't apologize for being who you are. Move forward into it. Get the best possible training you can afford. And whatever the fuck you do, do it now. Now, now. What's the alternative? To wait for five months and then do it now? <sighs> you know, the answer is just get started and then move into it with the best possible training you can do, you can afford. That's it, folks. Art of face dancing. Paul Gordon, Gordon Paul, whatever you want to call him. <laughs> Thanks for being a guest on the podcast, man. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a comment. And if you're a coach or consultant and you want to scale your online business or maximize your productivity, check out the show notes to find out more about Philip and his coaching programs. Rent over.